Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, domestic violence, child mortality, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On a cold, moonless night in rural West Virginia, 48-year-old Mary Jane Heaster stared up at the ceiling. Restless, she listened to her husband's snores and the wind outside her log cabin. Mary's mind wandered to her 23-year-old daughter, Zona. Specifically, the image of Zona's ashen face in her coffin. A week or so ago, Mary had buried her little girl, and now the grief cut at her heart like a knife. Officially, Zona had died of natural causes, but Mary knew something wasn't right. Something or someone had taken her baby from her. Mary turned and stared into the darkness. Suddenly, she heard the creak of a floorboard. A chill rushed down her spine. In the dim light, a shadow crept towards Mary. She clutched at the blanket, terrified. And then, in a flash, she realized it was her daughter. The more she stared, the more distinct the apparition became. Zona still wore the homespun dress she died in. Mary reached toward the figure, but her hand only touched air. The spirit retreated as if afraid and disappeared. The next day, Mary prayed harder than any other time in her life for Zona to return. And that evening, she reappeared. The ghost whispered a shocking revelation. Her death wasn't accidental. She was murdered. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the Greenbrier Ghost Haunting, one of West Virginia's most famous supernatural stories. In early 1897, the ghost of Zona Heaster Shue appeared to her grieving mother. Her testimony led to her husband's arrest for murder. This time, we'll examine the events leading up to Zona's death, including her marriage to local blacksmith Edward Trout Shue. Then, we'll take a closer look at Mary's visions and the subsequent trial. Next episode, we'll analyze whether Trout was as murderous as Mary claimed. We'll explore whether there is a scientific explanation for Mary's visions, and we'll debate Zona's real cause of death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... 
What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. The story of the Greenbrier ghost is a major part of West Virginia's local folklore. Unfortunately, like many urban legends, over time, truth and fiction blended, even in the comprehensive sources on the subject. So it's hard to say how reliable the narrative is. No eyewitnesses are alive today, and much of our evidence comes from their descendants. Zona Heaster's early life is also largely a mystery. Her tombstone said she was born Elva Zona Heaster in 1876. However, An 1880 census record suggested her birth date may have been about three years earlier. Our best guess is she was around 23 years old when she died. Zona grew up on a remote farm tucked away in Greenbrier County, smack dab in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains. The area is known for its rugged terrain and dense forests marked by rolling hills. The nearest train station was far away, and it could take an entire day to reach. So Zona's whole world consisted of her parents, her four brothers, and a few dozen others who lived on the neighboring farms. As a child, Zona helped her mother Mary collect eggs and trade them in the nearby town of Livesey's Mill. Eventually, when Zona was old enough, she made those trips on her own. This newfound independence created trouble. Mary had taught Zona the importance of chastity and temperance. But teenage Zona reveled in having lots of free time and no adult supervision. She soon earned the nickname the Wild Rose of Greenbrier. And she began a love affair with a man named George Waldridge. According to an unnamed source, he wasn't much of a catch. George had no money, no steady job, and few prospects. In other words, he couldn't support a family. So we can imagine Mary's horror when Zona announced she was pregnant with George's baby in the spring of 1895. In retrospect, the pregnancy was almost inevitable. A federal law made it illegal to sell contraceptives through the mail, which limited their availability in rural communities. The bill also banned doctors from teaching their patients about family planning, so Zona and Mary may not have known these options even existed. Abortion was also illegal, so Zona had little choice but to carry the baby to term. That November, she gave birth to a boy who died before Zona could give him a name. Many suspect Mary did everything she could to keep the affair and Zona's son a secret. Mountain communities were small and close-knit, Reputation mattered. Mary feared Zona would tarnish her family's name. This may have driven a wedge between Mary and her daughter. Zona was reeling from the loss of her child and went searching for comfort away from her overbearing mother. 
Not long after, in October 1896, she found what she was looking for in a handsome young blacksmith named Edward Shue. Zona met Edward, or Trout, as his friends called him, during one of her trips into town. He'd just moved to Greenbrier from the next county over. He was muscular and charming and liked to flirt with girls who came through the shop. Zona found him irresistible. But Trout had the opposite effect on Mary. She found him arrogant and loudmouthed, and she'd heard rumors that he'd been married before. She didn't know what had become of his wife, but it didn't seem like he'd be a good match for Zona. But once again, Zona ignored her mother's warning. She and Trout had a whirlwind romance, and soon they became engaged behind Mary's back. They tied the knot in late October, only a few weeks after they first met. They moved into a large two-story farmhouse in Livesey's Mill. They were happy, or at least they seemed happy to their neighbors. But Zona's marriage only worsened her relationship with her parents. She'd already humiliated her mother with the Woldridge affair, and the forbidden wedding was too much. Mary cut her off and refused to visit. The stress of losing her family took a physical toll. In early January 1897, Zona fell ill and was cared for by the local doctor, George Knapp. She was still unwell on Saturday, January 23rd, when Trout strapped on his winter boots and left for work in the freezing cold. On the way, he visited a woman known in their community as Aunt Martha Jones. Trout asked Martha if her 11-year-old son, Andy, could stop by the house and help Zona with a few chores. But Andy was already out working for the neighbors, so Martha said he would swing by later in the day. By 11 a.m., Trout came back to Aunt Martha's, only to learn Andy still hadn't checked on Zona. Irritated, he pressured Martha to make her son go. Trout said he didn't want his ailing wife out in the freezing cold while collecting eggs. Martha reassured him that Andy would take care of it. Even so, Trout stopped by two more times before lunch to check on Andy. It was like, deep down, he sensed something terrible had happened. Around 1 p.m., Andy finally went to the shoe house to help Zona. But as he reached the porch, the hairs on his neck stood up. The doors were closed, and the house was eerily quiet. Blood was puddled near the entrance. Andy knocked on the door, softly at first, then louder. He called Zona's name, but heard only silence. He pushed the creaky door open and stepped inside. The hardwood floors were smeared with dried blood, forming a trail that led into the kitchen. Andy found the dining room door closed. With a deep breath, he flung it open and charged inside. But before he got very far, his foot caught on something soft. He fell, and to his horror, landed directly on top of Zona's body. When he realized what was under him, he lurched backwards and screamed. Zona laid on the ground, one hand on her belly and the other outstretched. Her head was slightly twisted to the side. Her cloudy eyes stared straight ahead, her lips curled back in a horrific smirk. It looked like she was laughing. The teenage boy scrambled to his feet and bolted out of the house. He ran as fast as his legs would carry him back home. 
When he saw his mom outside, Andy yelled out Mrs. Shu was dead. Once he caught his breath, he explained everything. The blood, the body, all of it. Martha took him to Livesey's mill, where Trout worked. When they told Trout what Andy had seen, the blacksmith snapped at them to fetch the doctor and then ran home. It took Dr. Knapp about an hour to arrive. When he did, he found Trout in the bedroom, cradling his wife's head and sobbing. In his grief, Trout had moved Zona's body and put her in a fancy dress with a stiff, high-necked collar. He'd even placed a veil over her face and wrapped her with her favorite scarf. This was a little unusual. Normally after a death, the local women would wash and clothe the deceased for burial. But the doctor knew people dealt with loss in different ways, so he didn't dwell on the odd behavior. Especially because he had a job to do. Dr. Knapp checked Zona's pulse and found none. He looked for clues about her cause of death. He wanted to undress her to do a thorough examination, but Trout grew enraged at the idea. Knapp backed down rather than face his fury. That day, when Dr. Knapp wrote his report on Zona's death, he said she died of a, quote, everlasting faint. This was 19th century speak for a heart attack. As best as he could tell, she simply dropped dead. Word of what had happened spread through town. Neighbors gathered outside the shoe house, asking questions and offering to help. Dr. Knapp asked two young men who knew Zona to notify her family. When they arrived at the Heaster home, Mary stepped outside to meet them. She recognized the men, and from the look on their faces, she knew something terrible had happened. After the messengers finished delivering the news, Mary felt her knees grow weak. Then her grief gave way to another emotion, rage. Dr. Knapp may have concluded death was natural, but Mary believed otherwise. In her mind, Trout was responsible. She told the men, the devil has killed her. And she didn't mean Satan. Coming up, Zona returns from the grave. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. When Mary Heaster learned her daughter Zona had died in January 1897, her first thought was that her son-in-law must have been responsible. But Mary couldn't prove it, and she had to plan her daughter's funeral. So she stuffed her feelings back inside and notified the neighbors of the untimely death. The next morning, Trout prepared Zona for her final trip home. He bought a plain wooden coffin, placed a pillow on one side of her head, and propped up the other side with a rolled-up sheet. Then he loaded the box onto a wagon bound for Meadow Bluff, where the Heasters lived. When Zona reached the Heaster's home, Trout dragged a chair over to the coffin and planted himself next to her. In Appalachia, the grieving often sit with the recently deceased overnight. So that evening, friends and neighbors came from across the country to stay on the farm and keep watch over Zona's body. But Trout stayed up all night with her, and he remained at her side the next two days, too. Considering they'd only known each other for a few months, he was taking her death harder than many people had expected. During her memorial, he broke out in tears and cradled her head in his arms. When he wasn't crying, he was pacing around the coffin. He seemed brokenhearted. As far as we know, Mary Heaster was the only person who doubted his sincerity. She thought his grief was an act. She wanted to ask him what had really happened the day before, but couldn't work up the courage. So she kept her mouth shut. It tore her up, not knowing the truth about Zona. Life in the mountains was hard, even dangerous. But healthy young women didn't just drop dead from heart attacks. Mary still felt suspicious at Zona's funeral the next day. After the service ended, she kissed Zona one last time and removed the sheet beneath her head. She tried to return it, but Trout refused. He said he didn't need it anymore. When she walked back to the house, she realized she was still carrying the sheet. She sniffed it, hoping to catch one last whiff of her daughter's scent. Instead, she recoiled at a foul odor. She couldn't place the smell, but it was terrible. When Mary got home, she washed the sheet. As soon as she put it in the basin, the water turned red. So she rinsed it in boiling water, which only made the cloth turn pink. Mary didn't know what caused the stain, but it seemed like an ominous sign. That evening, Mary asked God for an answer. She cried, begged, and pleaded, but she was only greeted with silence. She prayed about Zona every night afterward. And about a week later... A miracle happened. While her husband slept next to her, Mary saw a pale, wispy figure approach her bed. At first, she was terrified. But as the apparition drew closer, she sensed Zona's presence, so she wasn't afraid. When she reached out toward the figure, a chill raced up her arm, like electricity. The shadow quickly retreated. But Mary was certain her daughter would come back to her. The next night she prayed again, and it worked. This time, Mary could see her clear as day. It was Zona. She'd come back to answer Mary's prayers. 
Zona said her mother's suspicions were correct. Trout wasn't the loving husband he claimed to be. Apparently, he'd come home on January 22nd in a bad mood. Zona had prepared dinner for him, bread and butter with applesauce and jam. Since they were poor, it was all she could afford. But Trout wanted meat, and he flew into a rage. He smashed her jars of preserves and attacked Zona. He grabbed her temples between his powerful blacksmith hands and wrenched her neck until it broke. Zona explained Trout had squeezed her skull off at the first joint, but Mary didn't understand what that meant. So the young woman twisted her head around 360 degrees, exorcist style. She finished her story by telling Mary to visit the shoe house and see for herself. If she examined the right-hand corner of the front door, she'd see blood. Zona appeared to her mother three more times in the weeks after her death. By the last visit, Mary was certain Trout was a murderer. But she needed proof. So at one point, Mary went to Zona's home and examined the front door, just like the ghost had told her to do. Sure enough, she found a small red stain in the right-hand corner, exactly where Zona had predicted. Now Mary knew the apparitions were real, but she still needed to convince everyone else. Luckily, she had a good reputation. As far as we know, Mary wasn't known for flights of fancy. She was seen as a pious Christian. So when Mary Heaster, a well-respected and upstanding member of the community, talked about Zona's ghost, people listened. Pretty soon, her neighbors knew all about her visions. And whether they believed her or not, Mary's allegations quickly became public knowledge. But spreading rumors wouldn't bring justice to Zona. So Mary made the long trek to visit her brother-in-law, Johnston, on his family farm. He was the oldest son in the family, and the Heasters all looked to him for guidance. Johnston helped Mary arrange a meeting with the county prosecutor, John Alfred Preston. In all likelihood, Preston agreed to speak with Mary out of sympathy, but their conversation would change his life. During their meeting, Mary recounted her visions in detail. It took hours to cover everything, and Preston agreed to at least look into the matter. He began by questioning Dr. Knapp about the day of Zona's death. Knapp explained Trout's intense grief prevented him from doing a proper examination. And he noted it was odd Trout hadn't let him touch Zona's head. But he also hadn't seen anything to indicate her husband had killed her. After their discussion, Preston sent deputies to question Zona's friends and relatives. Several people commented that Trout's behavior at the funeral was strange. At the time, they perceived his anguish as genuine. But after hearing Mary's story, they weren't so sure. And Preston learned one disturbing detail about her funeral. When the coffin moved, several people saw Zona's head seemingly flop around. Some speculated Trout had propped Zona's neck up with the pillow and sheet to hide her broken neck bones. But the only way to get at the truth was with a proper autopsy. In mid-February, about a month after Zona died, Dr. Knapp approached Trout and told him about his plan. Trout protested. He'd just buried his wife, and he refused to desecrate her grave. Besides, he knew he didn't kill her, so the exam was pointless. 
But Preston and several deputies overruled him. In 1897, one month after Zona's death, they escorted Trout to the cemetery to exhume the body. As they marched toward the chapel, Trout worried that the investigators had already made up their minds about him. They'd already decided he was guilty, no matter what the autopsy said. His life hung in the balance, and his fate would be decided by a dead woman. Coming up, Zona's post-mortem results. Now, back to the story. Mary Heaster had never liked Trout Shoe. When her daughter Zona died, Mary immediately suspected Trout had killed her. She even allegedly had testimony from Zona's ghost, but she needed hard evidence to back it up, which was why she fought for an autopsy. When Trout and prosecutor John Alfred Preston arrived at the cemetery on February 22, 1897, the whole community was waiting. Preston rounded up a few volunteers who dug through the frozen ground until they hit Zona's coffin. They used ropes to lift the casket and carried it to a nearby schoolhouse. A dozen people witnessed the post-mortem, including Knapp and two other doctors. Some versions of the story say they dissected Zona's body for three days and nights, but this is likely an exaggeration. Or perhaps it took that long for the cadaver to thaw out. The doctors worked methodically. Meanwhile, Trout sat on a box, calmly whittling a stick. But once the physicians started examining Zona's head, he became visibly nervous. When Dr. Knapp turned Zona over, he noticed something odd. There was a gap between the first and second vertebrae, right where the ghost said it would be. He then rolled the collar of her dress down to reveal bruises shaped like fingers. The doctor took a minute to confer with his colleagues. Then he turned to Trout and said, quote, Well, Shu, we have found your wife's neck to be broken. With those words, a change came over Trout. His whole body softened and his head dropped low. Struggling to keep his composure, he said, They cannot prove I did it. Authorities arrested Trout on the spot and brought him to the county jail. Local newspapers immediately picked up the story, and by early March, it was all anyone could talk about. Trout's friends and neighbors turned against him. The situation was so dire, Trout threatened to kill himself. He was in a dark place, but he still refused to believe a jury would convict him. Nevertheless, he lawyered up and prepared for the trial. He sent more than 100 letters to family, friends, and co-workers, assuming they'd testify on his behalf. The hearings began on Wednesday, June 23, 1897, five months after Zona's death. Onlookers crammed into the courtroom. This was a countywide affair. Preston called a slew of witnesses, including Dr. Knapp, Andy Jones, and a number of attendees from Zona's funeral. He also presented evidence that Trout wasn't who he claimed to be. First of all, his real name was Erasmus, not Edward. He'd started going by Edward after he'd gotten out of prison. Prior to this trial, few knew Trout had been arrested in the fall of 1888 for stealing a neighbor's horse. He'd served almost two years at the West Virginia Penitentiary in Moundsville. In addition to his criminal past, 
Preston revealed Trout had actually been married twice before he met Zona. His first wife divorced him, alleging abuse and cruelty. As for his second wife, she died under mysterious circumstances. Preston wanted to focus on these facts so he wouldn't have to rely on Mary's ghost story. And so when he did call Mary to the stand, he was very careful not to ask her about her visions. He didn't want the jury to think his case depended on unverifiable supernatural claims. But of course, everyone in Greenbrier already knew about Mary's story. So one of Trout's attorneys, William Rucker, asked her about it. Rucker wanted to paint Mary as superstitious and unreliable. He repeatedly suggested her visions were nothing more than dreams, but Mary pushed back at every turn. She denied that she was asleep when Zona appeared and said her Christian faith made her credible. Besides, she had proof to back up her claims. She'd never visited Zona's house before the visions, but afterward, she discovered it looked exactly like Zona had described it. Even the blood spot was there. As Mary testified, Trout watched the jury box. To his horror, they nodded along, seemingly enthralled. No one was on his side. Soon after, Rucker called Trout to the stand. This was his last chance to convince people he wasn't the monster Mary Heaster made him out to be. However, his emotions got the better of him. By all accounts, his testimony was a disaster. Trout accused the previous witnesses of lying. He raved that the whole trial was a farce. Finally, he made an appeal to the jurors. He dared them to look him in the eyes and say he was really guilty. He should have picked his words more carefully. On June 30th, after less than an hour of deliberation, 10 out of 12 jurors voted to hang him. The other two advocated for life imprisonment without parole. The sheriff's deputies brought Trout back to Moundsville Penitentiary, but he didn't stay there for long. In the spring of 1900, an epidemic swept through the prison. Many incarcerated people died, including Trout. In 1927, his wooden grave marker washed away, leaving no trace of his final resting place. Many Greenbrier County residents believed justice had been served, but some weren't so sure. Trout's brother insisted he'd been falsely convicted. There were a lot of details about the case that simply didn't add up. For instance, Andy Jones told people that when he went to the shoe house, he saw a trail of blood leading to her body. Mary also said she found blood on the door. But Dr. Knapp found no marks or wounds on Zona's body apart from minor bruising on her face. If Zona really was strangled, where did the blood come from? Also, many of the sources for this story are biased. Mary had a personal relationship with at least one reporter, and local newspapers made a number of errors in their articles. Many disagree on the date of Zona's marriage and death. Over time, the truth about the Greenbrier ghost haunting mixed with fiction. Little embellishments were added, and new aspects were invented whole cloth. Next episode, we'll dig a little deeper and see if we can figure out what really happened to Zona. We'll examine Trout's past to see if he actually was a cold-blooded killer. 
We'll also look at alternative explanations for Mary's visions and examine a few loose ends relating to how her daughter died. There are many unknowns in Zona's story. Some details are more urban legend than reality, and like all good myths, everyone has a different spin on it. We may never know the whole truth, unless Zona returns again. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with Part 2 of the Greenbrier Ghost Haunting. For more information on Zona's death, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Man Who Wanted Seven Wives by Katie Letcher-Lyle extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Chelsea Wood. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg, and Richard Rossner. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify.